first with a few hundred, then a few thousand. Then we moved into Madison Square Garden, and we've been there many times since. And we had 20,000 at the very first rally with 10,000 in the street. Then we moved to Yankee Stadium on a rainy day. We had 40,000 teenagers. Then it was Boston Garden, Philadelphia Convention Hall. And from there, it went around the world. Now, next, about a week after your graduation here, we're going to have in New York City, eternity, one million. And I've given posters to some of those that the powers that be, and they're going to have them up on all your bulletin boards. And we invite you to come to New York City. It's going to be a great time, beginning May the 13th, 14th, 15th, and 16th. We're expecting about 10,000 to come from outside and about 20,000 inside New York City. We have 350 churches working with us. We're going to have street meetings. We're going to all of the rescue missions, all the 38 prisons in New York City. We're going to have block parties up in Harlem and down some of the rough places of Brooklyn. We're going to be preaching the gospel there. And then on Friday, we're going to have 120 of our collegiate choir singing on the Treasury building opposite uh, Wall Street, uh, on Wall Street, opposite the New York Stock Exchange. And they're going to be singing, Have You Counted the Cost? If Your Soul Should Be Lost. And I'm going to be preaching on what will it profit a man that will gain the whole world across the street in the Stock Exchange and lose his own soul. And we're going to have one hour of that. We invite you to be in on all of that. Then we're going to have a mayor's prayer breakfast. First time in the history of New York City there's been a mayor's prayer breakfast. Uh, then we're going to have a parade in Times Square on Saturday. We're getting in Times Square, parading all the way down to Madison Square Garden. We're expecting to have it filled twice there in New York City. At the same time, it's called Eternity One Million. We're hoping to reach a million people. We're going to do the same thing in, in Moscow. We're going to do it in Berlin. We're going to bonus Aires in Sao Paulo and around the world. And so if you can get to New York to be in on all this, we'd really appreciate it. You'll turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 17, verse 26. Luke 17, 26. I believe we're in the last days. I do not know of any great Bible scholar that doesn't believe we're living in the last days. And, well, we might sing over and over again, Jesus may come today, glad day, glad day, and I would see my friend dangers and troubles would end if Jesus should come today. And our Lord tells us about that over in Luke chapter 17, verse 26, and as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. The same day that Lot entered into, went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Turn over to Genesis chapter 6, please, and we'll find out what was going on. Why God had to send a flood. God, God was an environmentalist. He saw the world was so dirty, he sent a flood to try to clean it up. And in Genesis 6, 5, we read this. God saw. Now just picture God looking down over the battlements of heaven, and God saw a terrible, 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 dirty, filthy, rotten world. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. The only thing you ever read in the Bible that is great about man is his wickedness. The wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every imagination, every thought, every intent, every desire of his heart was only evil continually. So his wickedness was only not only great, but it was evil continually. And so God, looking down out of heaven, in verse 6, it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. It grieved him at his heart. God's heart was pained, pained. God's heart was sorrowful, just like when the Lord looked over Jerusalem, he wept over the city of Jerusalem. And even so, he was weeping 
over the world that he had created. And so the Lord said, I'll destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing, fowls of the air, for it repented me that I have made them. But God never sends judgment without first sending someone to warn them. And so just before this flood, when God destroyed the billions of people that were on the face of the earth, just before that, God raised up a man by the name of Noah. And the first time you ever read the word grace in the Bible is in verse 8. Noah found grace. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then we read in the middle of verse 9, Noah was a just man. So he found grace. He was justified. And then we read Noah walked with God. Another translation says Noah was a pleasure to God. Look at your own life today. Can you, can you say, God, I want my life to be a pleasure to you? Did you get up this morning and spend some, some time in the Word and in prayer and have a quiet time? That's what makes the heart of God delight when we're a pleasure to the Lord. And then we read in verse 11, wonder what was going on. The earth was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. Underline that word, corruption, violence. And today, we have corruption, we have violence. Look at the political corruption in high places today. Look at the religious corruption. No matter which way you look, you see corruption, delinquency, crime, divorce, wars. And behold, verse 12, God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. USA Today said that our jails in the United States will double in the next 10 years. When I started preaching in New York City in the 17 prisons, there were 17 of them. Today, there are 38 prisons just in New York City alone. And then in verse 13, God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence. There it is again. And behold, I'll destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark. And so God again provide a way of escape. Now what was going on in Noah's day? There was idleness, just like there is in our country and around the world today. Pride, abundance, sodomy, rising crime wave, population explosion. Henry Morris of Creation Research estimates that at the time of the flood there were five billion people on the face of the earth, just as there are a little over five billion today. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the day of the coming of the Son of Man. Indifference to the things of God. Business as usual. The late Van Sadler said, We begin church at 11 a.m. sharp and end at 12 noon dull. No wonder our young people are being driven away from our churches today when we have this dullness. The most exciting book in the world, the most exciting Savior to tell about that can change and transform lives. And yet it's business as usual often. What are the politicians? What's the Pope talking about today? What are the heads of Russia talking about? They're talking about new world order, peace in our time. Well, you've got to be careful of that. Right now we have a lot invested. We're on 2,500 radio stations in the Russian language out of Moscow twice a week. We have a lot invested in Russia. We have a camp in the Ukraine of Russia and we've buying right now property north of Moscow, up in Siberia, and over in Lithuania. But we're conscious of the fact that when they say peace and safety, then cometh sudden destruction, and this sudden destruction could take place. We just had a couple from Argentina whose grandparents came and escaped from Russia many years ago, and now they have gone back to head up our work 
in Russia. And we warn them, keep your papers in order. Be ready at a moment's notice to flee because that Iron Curtain could fall tomorrow. Well, if we are in the last days and we really believe the coming of the Lord is very near at hand, then how should we live? How should we walk? Okay, Enoch. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Three hundred years Enoch walked with his God. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. We may be of that generation that will see the rapture of the church, so we walk with God, the rapture takes place, and we go home to be with the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and Noah walked with God. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. John said, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in truth. David, King David served the Lord in his generation according to the will of God. And I challenge every one of you kids here this morning, serve God today, wherever God puts you, in your generation, according to the will of God. If we're in the last days, the Lord said, Occupy till I come. Work for the night cometh when no man can work. My wife and I were on the way back from New Zealand. <clears throat> the Lord has given us a beautiful convent that used to belong to the Catholics, and they sold it to us for about 10 cents on the dollar. It has an Olympic swimming pool, everything you could imagine. And we have a camp there, we have a Bible institute there, and we're on our way back from New Zealand, and it's a long, long, long flight from Auckland, New Zealand to New York City. So you have plenty of time to read, you have plenty of time to rest, you have plenty of time to pray and walk up and down the aisle and it's a long, long trip. You think you're never, never going to get there. And as I was praying, I thought, can we have all of these thousands of people working with us all over the world? And we have these 35 youth camps around the world and we have 15 Bible institutes and we're soon going to begin a 16th one in Hungary where we have a five-story castle. And then the 17th one will be in Poland, the 18th one will be in the Ukraine, the Lord willing. And I started praying about this. And then I was reading through the book of Daniel. I'm looking forward to meeting Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Nebuchadnezzar, before he was saved, was a very brilliant man. And he, he told his assistant, he said, now look. And this is what it said in the translation I read. He said, pick out strong, healthy, good-looking lads... Young people have read widely in many fields, well-informed, alert, sensible, well-poised. And then if they go through my training program, they can become counselors when they graduate on my staff. Boy, I read that again. I said, that's what we need. Strong, healthy, good-looking young people who read widely in many fields, well-informed, alert, sensible, well-poised. And then they can be working on our staff after they do all of this. As I prayed about it, the Lord reminded me to take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and if you'll all do that, I'd appreciate it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, St. Paul was probably the most brilliant man who ever lived outside of our Lord. He could read, write, and speak 18, possibly 19 languages. And here was Paul, the brilliant Paul, speaking to the church of Corinth. Now, before I read these verses... Please remember that I did not write them. Paul wrote these verses under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And some people don't like that. And I'm not knocking education. We have one fellow on our staff and on our board in Hungary who has two PhDs, one from Oxford and one from the University of Hungary. And we have one gal on our staff who can speak 12 languages and has just found a tribe that nobody even knew existed before in Colombia. 
and reached it, and she's 82 years of age and still trotting through the jungles. So I want you to know that we're not knocking education when I read you these verses. Some people misunderstand, but listen to what Paul said. For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. It doesn't say not any, it said not many. Once in a while, while the Lord gets his hands on some greats. I remember back in 1962 when we were conducting a Bible class Sunday afternoons at the United States Military Academy at West Point. There was a cadet by the name of Howard Graves. Little ever realized that today he's the superintendent of West Point. He runs the whole thing. He's a three-star general. All of a sudden, God gets a hold of people and promotes them. But not many wise after the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble. Now, who does God usually call? Now, this might be very encouraging to most of us. It is to me. God hath chosen. There have been several books written about Word of Life, and the first one ever written about Word of Life was entitled, God Hath Chosen. And I asked the author why he used those three words. He said, because I think all the Word of Life gang are from the cave of Adullam, and they all fit in on this. Thank you. Verse 27, God hath chosen what? The foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. The base things of the world, the things which are despised that God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why did God do that? He tells in the next verse that no flesh should glory in his presence. So God never shares his glory with any man. Therefore, God has to call the foolish, the weak, the base, the despised, the are not. And I've found around the world, and I've been in over 70 countries around the world, that God... God's power shows up best in very weak people. I think years ago, we had a missionary speaking at the campfire. At our five camps in the Adirondacks, we have about 2,000 a week there. And we're having a campfire service on the island, which is our team camp. And we had a fellow named Bob Williams, who for 41 years pioneered out in Borneo. He was a cowboy from out here in Arizona. And God saved him, wonderfully saved him. And he went out to Borneo, worked among wild men of Borneo, the headhunters, the Dayaks, people that lived in trees. And he established 119 churches. Which was wonderfully he was sharing this with the young people. There was a fellow there by the name of Harold Reimer. And Harold was in his last year of college. And he came to Bob Williams at the close of the campfire service. And we were walking away. He caught up with us and he said, Borneo, Bob, I'd like to be a missionary. But I can't do anything. I'll never forget, Bonio Bob stopped right there in the path and put his arm around him. He said, Buddy, I believe God's going to use you. God's looking for people who are nobodies, who want to exalt somebody, and that's the Lord Jesus. People that can't do anything, then God's got to do everything. That fellow's name was Harold Reimer. He now heads up our six camps and four Bible Institute's in Brazil. He's on radio and television. It's a magazine. Probably the best-known evangelist in all of Brazil today. So when you think you can't do anything, and you're one of the foolish and the weak and the base and the despised, the are nuts, you're the kind of person that the Lord is trying to get a hold of. Now, who's the man that God uses? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure 
That's the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in earthen vessels. You are that earthen vessel. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Another translation says we have this treasure in a jar of clay. Another one which I really like, we have this treasure in a perishable container. And I remind every one of you here this morning that you live in a perishable container. We're here today and we're going tomorrow. And we only have this one life that all too soon will be passed. And the only thing that's ever going to last is what we do for Jesus Christ. So Paul said we have this treasure in perishable container that the excellency of the power... And another translation says that the excellency of the power and light may be of God and not of us. We have uh, three camps in the Philippines and we have a graduate school over there. And I was talking to one of our own leaders. And I said, you know, I just visualized that these Filipinos could move into the whole South Pacific and evangelize. He said, you don't know the Filipinos. They're slow, they're dumb, they're stupid. Oh. I said, but what are you going to do about 2 Corinthians 4, 7? Are you looking to the Filipinos or are you looking to the Lord? We have this treasure in perishable containers of Filipinos or anyone else that the excellency of the power and light may be of God and not of us so God can use anybody, anywhere, at any time. And don't come up to God and say, well, I'm slow, I'm stuttering and stammering all over the place like Moses did because God is looking to use weak people. Turn over to Acts chapter 4. And remember in Acts chapter 4, Peter said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we might be saved. Now, all of you know Acts 4.12, but how about Acts 4.13? Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men unlearned and ignorant men they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus now you look back at Peter and John they were unlearned they were ignorant and that's where many of us are when we start now you may start dumb you may start ignorant but you don't stay there because as you trace through the life of Peter, all of those great sermons, and some of them were very long sermons that he preached in the book of Acts, Peter preached those sermons. Or you take a look at any first and second Peter, and you find out he may have been unlearned and ignorant, but he did not stay that way. Or just take a look at John, unlearned and ignorant. He wrote the Gospel of John, first, second, third John, the Revelation. So you may be dumb and ignorant when you stop, but you don't stay that way. I've always been a slow reader. I bluffed my way through high school. I don't ever, until I was 19 years of age, ever remember reading a book. I'd steal other people's book reports and hand them in. I remember in French class, I was on the track team, and, and I needed to pass in order to get by, and the fellow sat in front of me. I thought he was awfully smart. I didn't realize he was the biggest bluffer in the class. And when it came to examination, I copied everything that he said. I looked over his shoulder. And we both handed in our papers, and we both got 40. And the prof couldn't believe that two guys could be so exactly dumb and write the same dumb answers. Now, you may be dumb and stupid when you get saved, but you don't stay that way. You become a new creation. And I remember shortly after I was saved, I met Dr. Ironside of the Moody Church in Chicago. And he gave me a Schofield Bible, and he said, Son, 
read it through every year. Uh, read it through at least once every year. That's what I do. Wow. How am I ever going to do that? Well, I'd read about some of these great giants on the faith that got up early in the morning and would read for a couple of hours, and I thought, well, I guess I'll try that. So I set the alarm clock for 3 a.m., and I got up, put the Bible in my bed and start reading, and 3.15, I was sound asleep. <laughs> I said, I'll try it at 4. That didn't work. 5 didn't work. 6 didn't work. 7 was much better. The only trouble is at 7 o'clock, I had to get washed and dressed and catch the subway by... 8 a.m. because I had an hour trip down to Wall Street where I work and an hour every, every day home in the crowded subway. And so I thought, well, because later on I found out that these fellows who get up at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, they went to bed about 8 o'clock in the evening, so it was all right to get up that time. When you get to bed at midnight and try to get up at 3, it, it just doesn't work, at least for me it didn't. So I said, I got an idea. I'll read my Bible through in the subway. Got one hour, no secretaries, no television, nothing. To bother you. How many of you have ever ridden in a New York City subway during rush hour? Raise your hand. One. Okay. If you come to eternity one minute, I want to give you some instruction on what you do. Because you'll be in the subways. We're going to be singing and preaching and testifying in the subways. You stand about six, six feet in back of the door, and you get your elbow like this. See? And when the door opens, you go, Charge! And you hope you get in, the door closes behind you. And immediately, everybody puts the New York Daily News on your back. So I figured I'd put the good news on their back. And New Yorkers, and I am one, so I can tell you, New Yorkers are the nosiest people in the world. They're always looking over your shoulder to see what you're doing. <laughs> Some of our original word of lifers I led to the Lord because they were looking over my shoulder. I remember one fellow, he said, what are you doing, preparing a Sunday school lesson? I said, no. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm just having my breakfast. He said, what do you mean? I said, didn't you ever know the Lord said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that cometh out of the mouth of God? He said, how interesting. And he worked out of Wall Street, and I worked on John Street, and both got off together, and we got talking about things of God, and he never met anybody who was reading the Bible like that. And uh, he said, what business are you in? He said, I said, I'm in the insurance business. He said, hey, I just bought a car. I need to buy a policy. Maybe we could have supper together. So we had supper, and I found out the policy costs more than the car. And so I said, hey, we're having an evangelistic meeting over in Brooklyn tonight. I'd like you with me. He went. When the invitation was given, I put Mom around him. I said, Bill, wouldn't you like to accept the Lord? He accepted the Lord. That afternoon, I bought a beautiful leather-covered New Testament. And I said, Bill, do you have a Bible? No. Not home? No. And the Lord told me to give this New Testament. I thought, I can't do that. I've been saving up a long time. But funny, I did. You know, that fellow became one of the original Word of Lifers. Later on, he became a GI out in New Guinea, where he dedicated his life to become a missionary. And he became a missionary down in the jungles of Brazil, and God wonderfully used him with the South America Indian Mission. And a few weeks ago, I preached Bill's funeral. A whole life to look back on, and he was in a wheelchair for two years, paralyzed. And he said, you know, these are the greatest two years of my life, of his prayer ministry. So God reaches out, and he saves people, and they may be dumb and ignorant when you get saved, and you may not know much about, hey, I did not, I thought even the notes at the, in the scope of the Bible were part of the script. I, I memorized a lot of the notes. I'm glad I did. It was a good theology, you know. 
They were unlearned, ignorant, but they didn't stay that way. They moved out for God. If I were to ask you this morning, how many of you want to be approved under God? I'm sure all of you would raise your hand. And yet there's only one way to be approved under God. You study, study this book to show yourself approved under God, a workman needeth not to be ashamed, right to divine the word of truth. Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture from Genesis to Revelation is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And when you know the Bible, you can do biblical counseling. You don't need psychiatry, you don't need psychology and all the rest of the stuff that's going around today when you know the Word of God. That's the important thing to do today. Well, are you ready to serve the Lord in your generation? That's what God wants you to do. Serve in your generation. And I thought this morning I'd tell you about some people I know around the world who are serving God today in their generation. Back seven years ago when Poland was still under the com in the communist bloc before the Iron Curtain fell, there's a fellow named Maori. I don't know how he ever got out of the communist land of Poland. He and his wife and baby... And they came to the Adirondacks and came to our Bible Institute where we do a four-year Bible major in 12 months' time. And he studied with us. And after he finished, I said, Mallory, where are you going? So I'm going back. I said, well, you know, you could very easily stay here. You don't have to go back. I can't make you go back. He said, yeah, but I'm going back. When he got back and arrived at the airport with his wife and kids a year later, there were hundreds of his friends there to meet Maori, why did you come back? Why didn't you escape? Why did you come back to this for? He said, because this is my country. This is the land God called me to. Now the whole land is open. We've just had Euro youth over in Hungary at our castles. Had about a thousand Christian leaders and young people there with us. And Maori came with 192 from Poland. And he had thousands on our camp in Poland this summer. Now he's serving the Lord in his generation. There was another fellow there by the name of Carlos Odesio. Carlos Odesio was a jungle Indian down in Peru. And he was a very brilliant fellow. He could speak Spanish and English as well as the Indian dialects. And there was a girl from the Netherlands who was working for a, a travel agency, and she was the tourist guide. And she brought these people to Peru, and they were going up into the jungles. They wanted to see what the Indians looked like. And she was a very beautiful, attractive girl, but she wasn't saved. And Odysseo was hired to be the guide. And it wasn't long before Odysseo led this girl to the Lord. A year later, she went back with another group on tour. And he fell in love with that girl. They were married. Now they have several little Odysseos. And they head up all of our ministry in the Netherlands. Men who are serving God in their generation. Another fellow was there was Steve Metzke. And Steve is from Cincinnati, Ohio. And Steve was a businessman. He had a home. And then he went to head up our ministries in Spain. And he came over to Euro Youth over in Hungary. I said, how you doing on the, buying the camp in Spain? He said, well... $35,000 short of the money we need. Whoa, I said, where in the world are you ever going to get $35,000? Oh, I said, don't worry about it. I already got it. 
I said, how'd you get it? He said, I mortgaged my home back in Cincinnati for 35000 and bought the tent. Men who are serving God in their generation according to the will of God. And then when I got back to New York, there was a letter from Dick Parker. Dick Parker heads up our work way up in the jungles along the Amazon. And he works with naked, savage Indians. He leads them to the Lord, and he teaches them trades and teaches them the Bible and shows them how to make a living and how to live right. And I got a letter from Dick Parker. He said, I guess you've heard my wife died of cancer. And I'm all alone here in the jungles now. He said, remember a year ago when I sold my home in Oklahoma? And I took all the money from my home to build the work in Brazil. He said, I'm sure glad I did that. He said, I have no desire ever to go back to that home. There'd be too many memories of my wife and all that went on. Men were serving God in their generation according to the will of God. Another fellow that was there was a fellow named Larry Ballback, the son of our co-director, Harry Ballback. And uh, Larry heads up all the work in Portugal. Let me tell you, let's go back to 1976. He was All-American soccer player for three years. He was the number one draft pick. He made the Olympics in Montreal. In the middle of all of this, a claim came to me one day. He said, I'm turning it all down. I'm going to Portugal. He was born in Brazil so he could speak Portuguese fluently. I said, Larry, you're crazy. You can't get into Portugal. Russia's about ready to take it over. And it's been ordered out. There are no missionaries there. He said, yeah, but I believe God wants me to go. I said, well, Larry, why don't you play pro ball a couple of years and make a lot of money and get all your college bills paid up? And he said, yeah, I know all that sounds good, but I, I just believe I'm going back to Portugal. I'm going to Portugal very soon. I looked at him as though he had more nerve and brains. And a few weeks later, he went down to Washington, D.C. He was holding meetings one night in a meeting in a, in a church. And next morning, he decided to go over to the Portugal embassy. As he walked in the Portugal embassy, here was a girl by the name of Maria at the door. And Maria said, Larry Ballback, what are you doing here? He said, Maria, what are you doing here? Maria was a girl from Portugal who had come to America. In her words, she said, I came to raise hell in America, unconverted gal. She was led to the Lord by a preacher up in Maine. He sent her out to our camp in the Adirondacks where she dedicated the life of the Lord. She came to our Bible Institute, and she went back to Portugal, and that was the last we heard of her, but she's a bilingual secretary, and she landed a job as being the private secretary to the ambassador from Portugal to Washington. And Larry told her what he wanted. She said, well, there are no visas being given, so there's no way. But listen, you're a good basketball player, and you're a great... Well, American soccer player, I remember from your testimony, and the old man, that's the ambassador, he loves to talk about athletics. Come on up. So he went up, and he, here he's sitting there eating cake and coffee with the ambassador, and, and the ambassador finally looked at him and he said, you know, we're, we're not giving any visas, but if you would be interested in going to my country and uh, teaching our athletes how to play ball and how to play basketball and how to play soccer, um, you know, I could get your visa for that. Well, he said... Uh, that would be great, and that's what we'd like to do, but we, we want to preach. Oh, I said, we don't care what, what you preach. Go ahead. And Larry walked out of that office with visas for our whole team. And during the very two weeks the Olympics were on that he turned down, he had rented a camp. Now we own a beautiful camp over there, but he rented a camp. And he invited all these athletes from all over. Many of those athletes are our key guys working with us today in Portugal. Men who are serving God 
in their generation. The other day we heard from Eddie. Eddie is from Argentina. He was a wild, hippie, dope addict, got converted. He heads up all of my work in Costa Rica. And we heard from the other day, he said, well, the sad news is I have Lou Gehrig's disease. But he said, as long as I can run, I'm going to run all over Costa Rica. When I go through running, I'll walk in. When I can't walk, I'll have him put me in a wheelchair. He said, when I'm in bed until I go home to be the Lord, I'm going to keep preaching the gospel of the grace of God. Men whose hearts God has touched. Back several years ago, there was a young fellow working on our staff in the Adirondacks, graduate from Scroon Lake High School. His name is Leon Dillinger. Very, very quiet fellow. One night at the campfire, he dedicated his life to the Lord and got his medical training, felt God was calling him to be a missionary. And he was going out to New Guinea among the tribal people. And on the island, he met a gal by the name of Lorraine, and they fell in love, and they got engaged to be married. And one day I said, uh, Leon, what's the big date? Oh, I said, around the middle of May. I said, that's when you're going to be married? The middle of May? Where? Oh, no, 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 no. That's when I leave for New Guinea. I said, when are you going to get married? He said, God only knows. He said, but where I'm going... There may not be any coming back because no missionaries have ever gone in and come out alive. And he said, I got a couple other fellows interested and we're going in. And he said, if the natives let us live, I'll have Lorraine come out and we'll be married by some missionary out here. And he went. When they got there, they didn't know whether they should be parachuted down into the valley or whether going with a helicopter just what to do, but finally they decided to hike mountains 13,000 feet high, crocodile-infested jungles, had to go through and then over the mountains. Finally they got in. And in a miraculous way, they found favor with the natives. He wrote me a letter and he said, I think these are the dirtiest, filthiest people he said, not one of them has ever taken a bath. But he said, you know, somehow, maybe some of them are going to get saved. Maybe a couple of them. He said, they're dirty inside, they're dirty outside, they're immoral, they're, they're filthy people. Then about six months later, he wrote, he said, well, I think one of them now we've communicated with, and, and this fellow, I think, is now a child of God. And then a few months later, he said, I think we had another one. And then he came home on... Perlo and he and Lorraine were married and they went back and they lived in a grass hut. And we never could hear much from him of what was going on. But evidently something big was going on because Time Magazine heard about it and Time Magazine flew the reporters in in a helicopter to find out what was going on. And then one day I was walking into a department store about 35 miles south of us in Glens Falls, and I see Time Magazine. And here's Leon Dillinger's picture on the front page. says, The New Missionary Preaching the Gospel in New Guinea. I see. How did he ever get on the front page of Time? Nobody ever more life got on the front page of Police Gazette that long time. I think there were 35 copies of it on the newsstand. I bought all 35. I felt like walking around the store said, Hey, I know this song. And I sat there and I read, the, I read what 
you'd never get this from Leon. If he were here, he's very quiet and never tells much. But I can tell you what the reporter in New York, in the Time magazine said. Dillinger and his wife Lorraine work among cannibal tribesmen cut off from the outside world by crocodile-infested malaria lowlands and mountain ranges that soar to 13,000 feet. When the Dillingers arrived, he remembers that every aspect of the cannibal world had spirits. They worshipped the mountains, they worshipped the gardens, the trees. People lived in constant fear and dread. The oppressive atmosphere also bred wars. Lorraine said, the hardest thing for me to do was to stand there and have to watch them kill each other before we could teach them the gospel and even learn their language. The Dillingers went to work to convert the tribesmen who relied on charms and fetishes to fight the evil spirits. When the couple lived in a grass hut, the tribal chief surprised them one day by coming and said to them, as long as we have our fetishes, we are not ready to hear about God. Boy, I sat there and I read that, as long as we have our fetishes, we're not ready to hear about God. I thought maybe that's the problem in America today. People have so many fetishes that they're not ready to hear about God with all these fetishes and idols that they worship. So I jotted down some of the fetishes that we have in America. You know, we look at these poor naked savages with their fetishes. I wrote down crystal ball gazes, hypnosis, homosexuality, the occult, black magic, gambling, lotteries, bingo parties, Ouija boards, tea leaf readers, drugs, videos, rock music, horoscopes, astrology, ESP, dirty TV. Remember what happened in Acts 1917 when they took their fetishes and burned their magical books? Remember Deuteronomy 18? Listen to what happened over there in the jungles. The chief said, as long as we have our fetishes, we are not ready to hear about God. About 5,000 cannibals brought their charms and spirit paraphernalia and threw them onto a bonfire. Dylan just said, the men shouted for joy. The people ran up and down, so happy were they to be free of those things. He said, it couldn't have been noisier if UCLA were playing USC. Tribal bloodshed ceased. The fear of spirits abated, and gradually, get this, you'd never find this out from him. There's a picture of him and his wife with the cannibals in back them. Gradually, more than 100,000 cannibals became Christians. Unlearned, ignorant. People modeled technology on them, they've been with Jesus. And because they went out, What are you going to do? That's not the end of the story. We heard from Leon, he said, I have cancer and it's terminal. But here I am in the jungles and I'm asking God to keep me alive until I've written a commentary on every book of the Bible in their language. What are you going to do with your life? I can look back 
35 years ago in Milwaukee when a fellow named Jim Elliott was over at Wheaton and Ed McCulley had already graduated. He was the number one debater among the universities in America. He beat Army. He was starting to be a lawyer. His father was very, very wealthy. He came and picked me up in Sheboygan, brought me down to speak at a CBMC breakfast the next morning. And Ed McCulley in the car that night said, you know, here I got everything. Riches, education. I believe I can make it big. I might even take over my father's business and he was president of a large bird company. I may become a lawyer. But he said, I've just heard from Jim Elliott, my old buddy in college, and he wants me to consider going down to work among the Alka Indians. I'm just wondering if we ought to do that. And Jim and I sat in the car. It was past midnight. We had prayer together, or rather Ed and I. Little we realized that's the last time I'd ever see Ed. Ed went down with Jim Elliott. And, you know, I think of a guy like Jim Elliott. If he were here in the school or our school or any others, they'd probably call him a fanatic. I mean, he would grab people by the lapel and say, what'd you get out of the Word today? Tell me about somebody who led the Lord this week. That's the kind of a guy Jim was. And then when the five fellows were martyred by the Alka Indians, Olive Fleming, the widow of P. Fleming, came to work on our staff. And one day I said to her, Hey, what does it take to make a P. Fleming that would give his life to reach a handful of Alka Indians? She said, Well, maybe it began up at the University of Washington. She said, uh, he was ready to graduate, and I was an underclassman, and he asked me for a date. And I was flattered that he would even ask me on a date. And said, uh, Olive, how many verses do you know in the book of Colossians? Oh, she said, uh, Colossians. Hmm. I don't think I know any. Well, look, before we go out on a date Friday night, suppose I haven't memorized any either. We'll both memorize Colossians 1, and we'll say it to one another, Okay. Oh, she said, yeah, he's straight A and I'm straight F plus. And we're in examinations. Easy for him, but not for me. But she said, it's amazing what love will do. She said, by Friday night, I not only had every verse in Colossians 1 memorized, I could tell you where the colons and periods and commas and everything else was. We had a good date, I guess, because she said, how about next Friday night? Okay. Colossians chapter 2. She said, by the time we had finished memorizing Colossians and Ephesians, we were going steady. That kind of separates the men from the boys, huh? But here we are, 35 years later, after these five wonderful guys, some of them personal friends of mine. Today we have a Word of Life Bible Club among the Alka Indians. And four of these Indians are studying at our school where we have 600 students in Buenos Aires in the Spanish language. And here you are. Ask yourself, am I ready to serve the Lord in my generation according to the will of God? 
A guy might lead you to be a business executive, doctor, lawyer, housewife, pastor, missionary. But wherever God puts you, you're ready to say, God, I want to serve you in my generation according to the will of God. Let's bow for prayer. And while our heads are bowed and our hearts are bowed, I want you to think about what you've heard. There's a generation of pioneers for God in the business world, in the pastorate, on the foreign field. And they're rapidly passing away. And we need a whole army of college young men and women who are saying, God, I want to serve you according to the will of God in my generation. It means burning up the fetishes in your life. It means getting up in the morning and hitting the book, spending time in prayer. It means carrying tracts and gospels and witnessing and speaking up for the Lord. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And maybe people look at you as another holy Joe, a fanatic. But you're determined you're going to serve God according to His will in your generation. I'd like to pray for you if you mean that. In our walk with God. And it was not. Because God took him. Noah walked with God. John said, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in truth. You can't walk in truth unless you know the Word of God. I'm going to ask you this morning, how many of you fellows and girls from the depths of your heart mean it? Yes, Jack, I want to serve God in my generation according to the will of God. If you mean that, we just quietly stand to your feet. I want to pray for you. Don't stand up because somebody else does, please. Lord, sealed by the Holy Spirit, every decision is being made this morning. God, how we need men and women who will serve you according to your will in their generation. Father, help us to realize that we only have this one life. All too soon will be gone and passed. And only what we do for you is going to last. Lord, do miracles among the student bodies who are beginning a new term. May there be a spirit of revival where fellows and girls get together and pray and read the Word together and cry out to God for the will of God for their lives that you might do miracles. Say that no our God should be strong and do exploits. 
When the enemies come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a stand against the enemy. Lord, do it through this student body and masters. For Jesus' sake, amen. May be seated. Let's stand again. 